0: What's up y'all and welcome to Black and Intellectualish, a podcast about race, culture, education,
1: and whatever else comes up. I'm your boy MP. And I'm T Chin.
0: Alrighty, how you doing T?
1: I'm exhausted. Exhausted? <laughs> <laughs> I'm good, how are you?
0: Same, I am tired, but I was telling you before we started recording... Things are going a lot better for me. I feel like I'm a lot more productive than I was in 2020. So I am doing well.
1: That's good. I'm happy to hear that. That makes me happy.
0: Yeah. And I've been secretive on the past couple of episodes. So if you've been listening and you're like, (laughs) what is MP doing? That's not his dissertation. I've been working on a business and, and it is finally launched. So I just started Find Your New Direction LLC, which is a career coaching and talent development company that works with working professionals who are looking to change careers, go back to school, or start their own businesses. And I also work with companies to do career coaching and training for their staff, as well as diversity, equity, and inclusion training. So if you wanna check that out, findyournewdirection.com is the website. But yeah, I've been working really hard trying to get the brand up and running, trying to start the social media following, and all of that, and I have some consultations next week and some meetings and things like that. So I am excited about how this is going.
1: Yes, and I'm, it's only the beginning of a prosperous business. I was actually thinking about your business in relation to The Professor's Inn. So The Professor's Inn is a brand that is kind of marketed as preparing doctoral students or people who are already maybe early career in faculty to become a faculty member. Yeah. and one of our colleagues got their material reviewed by them, and your rates are a lot better. <laughs> so <I'll> just <laughs> say that. And when I saw them, it it wasn't that the like the information was bad or anything, but it wasn't like stellar in terms mm-hmm. of like I didn't see it where I'm, I just from working with you, I know that you would provide services that are definitely on par with what they do, if not better. And so I was like, oh, that's really smart because. I think it was like three documents for $600 maybe. Ooh, wee, (laughs) child. Yeah. And it might've been a little more.
0: Yeah. I mean, for me, (laughs) so I have a couple goals with this business. The first is, and I mentioned this kind of jokingly, but I really do care deeply about generational wealth. And so I know that this is the first of a couple businesses that I'm going to start. I have ideas already in my head. I have brands already in my head. And so it's all about pulling the trigger and making sure that we bring those things to life and that we have something to leave behind when we go. The other is that this is a social entrepreneurship venture, meaning that I don't intend to just try to stack my paper and make a bunch of money off of people. I'm giving away a third of my profit to nonprofits and organizations that focus on professional and personal development for underrepresented and under-resourced groups. So... I probably could charge more. I probably will increase my rates once we've been moving for a little bit. But I think right now the goal for me is to help people. And I can't convince people to let me help them if my rates are through the roof and then not having customers will not help me serve the community well right because if i don't have customers a third of zero is zero yes. so, <laughs> so i want to make sure that uh, i'm doing this in a way that's competitive not because i'm trying to stack my own money or whatever uh, but because i'm doing it for the community and i'm doing it for my legacy as well so i'm excited yeah. and this has been a long time coming it's something i've been dreaming about for a while but I was allowing myself to be afraid. And so, you know, like I mentioned, pulling the trigger is the first step and it's not hard to file an LLC. So if you have a business idea, I'm not trying to knock anybody's hustle, <laughs> but do not pay anybody to file to your LLC. Okay. Cause it's, it's not hard <laughs> and you already have to pay to file it. Yeah. Um, so is it di- expensive? It's not expensive. It was, I think the, it was around $150 if I'm not mistaken to do everything and some of it's not mandatory that you do. So it was like 75 for the filing, I think it was. And then there's some other things that are optional and I went ahead and got all of it. And so I think it was around 150 or so. Obviously there's other startup costs, but if you're just trying to start your LLC, it'll sometimes cost you 75 to $100 just to secure someone to do it for you. And then they're gonna wrap all the rest of the costs into their feet and charge you for it anyway. Uh, and you can do it yourself. It's yeah. it's a little too easy.
1: That's one of the many reasons why I love the internets because yes. <laughs> a lot of things you could just self teach yourself and yes. save some money. Yeah.
0: Now, I will say if you're trying to start a nonprofit, more power to you. That's a beautiful aspiration. That's not so easy. You probably want to hire it's more somebody because <laughs> telling the government you want to make a nonprofit and have people give you money that you don't have to pay taxes on, the government's not really trying to let you do that. And so. I've never seen anything as complicated as that. Really? Uh, yeah, I, that is that was out of control. How complicated that was. <laughs> so, th- my advice is only relevant to people who are trying to do LLCs, not nonprofits. That's a whole different vibe. Anyway, let's jump into PhD One Hundred and One.
1: Yeah. Um. So this week. I'm just sharing some insight into why I am so exhausted (laughs) is I'm on the job market. And so just this week, MP and I were thinking about how we can share a little bit about the job search, the interviewing process, which includes the job talk, which I will say for me Mm -hmm. has been the most challenging in terms of preparing and getting all the things together. So I won't say where, (laughs) but I did have what's now a virtual on campus so maybe stepping a few steps back a quick synopsis of the process into becoming a faculty member into the the job search process is that i had to start applying to jobs in the fall for next fall so Mm -hmm. my hope is to be in a position in fall 2021 but that this job searching began in fall 2020. And so I started to apply to jobs. A lot of the applications were due, I would say at the end of November, all into like more recently, even February 1st, I applied to a few more jobs. So I applied to a job sometime in December and I heard back from them, I believe in January. And then we set up an initial Zoom meeting. So a lot of the positions, if you do make it through, you know, the initial screening of candidates, They'll have a short Zoom meeting, maybe 20 to 30 minutes in length with the search committee. And then if you advance to their final round, then typically on a non-COVID time, then you would be invited to an on-campus interview, which is like a two-day exhaustive process. (laughs) I had to do a virtual version of that, which for this particular institution was two days. And so the first day included a job talk that was slated in total for an hour and a half. So 45 minutes of the job talk and then 45 minutes for the Q and A. And so that was a long time. (laughs) So I feel like being a graduate student and seeing faculty candidates come to campus, the longest I've seen was a half an hour. Mm-hmm. And so, like, in my mind, when I heard 45 minutes, I'm like, this is a lot. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I'm capable, but it's it was a lot. And typically, places will give you some sort of prompt or, like, framing thing to think about. Okay. This one was pretty generic, but it was related to my particular field. They asked, like how can you speak to your contributions in the field and where do you see like your direction of your research going?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I started to prepare like literally a week and a bit before my actual interview, but I will say mm. I was still fixing and practicing right up until the time. I learned a lot through this process. Some things that I'll share is that you can't have too many opinions. Okay. <laughs> so I was sharing with MP that like he was one of the many people I asked to like he- watch me or as I practice and... I think leading up to the day when I was supposed to share with you, <laughs> I had like shared with six people. That mm-hmm. was already too much. You know, before recording, we talked about like preferences so people would maybe notice colors or like the way the slides are laid out. And while that's very helpful and I know everyone who supported me came from a place of love, I was just feeling very overwhelmed yeah. as a person. Yeah. Um, so one thing I learned was maybe I'll just have like two to three people for each time that I'm preparing and maybe those people may see me twice Mm -hmm. and just having the same people because I think what was happening was like I was getting conflicting like opinions from the first group of people and the second group of people yeah but I feel like overall it went well it was a long process I ended up using cue cards I don't know what you know people may see as like helpful but I literally wrote cue cards or I think people Key cards might be Canadian, I don't know. No, index I know what cards. you mean. Okay. But yeah,
0: you like writing on index cards. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Some people might picture cue cards as like what actors use okay. on, on the set of like a sitcom okay. where somebody's in the background with okay. like a giant poster. But yeah, I know what you mean. I was mean. like, I think
1: that's what we call it in Canada. And so I literally sat down and wrote, I typed my script up, but mm-hmm. I sat down and wrote it onto index cards. Mm-hmm. And I, my friend once made me realize now that I probably could have bought a ring that attached them all but I like hole-punched the corner of each of them and I had 40. And I like made a string through them.
0: (laughs) You could have done like a a key key ring. Yeah, Yeah. so
1: so just imagine this is all (laughs) of the things I was doing leading up. Um, But overall, I feel like it went really well. I definitely appreciated this piece of feedback that I'll share. One thing one of my dear friends gave me, kind of like setting the stage for your audience. So he was saying, typically when you think about a presentation at a conference, mm-hmm. there's people that are going to come that are in your lane, yeah. that are beside your lane, that sometimes they swerve into your lane, yeah. and so they have some sort of context for what you're presenting. But when you think about the job talk in this context, it could be in a department where there's some people who've never heard of the things that you're talking about, mm. and their only interest is to come and see you as a candidate but they have no interest in your actual research. right? And so this department that I'm entering into, a number of the faculty members, their work would definitely not be in relation to my work. Mm-hmm. And so that was really helpful. And one of the things I definitely did was break down like key terms that I was using and yeah. actually provide definitions. And there wasn't an assumption. For example, we talk about critical race theory all the time. For me, thinking about people like UMP, I would feel like, oh, I don't need to tell you the tenets. Like, let's just, like, skip that because I I really want to talk about Black Crit. But I realized I have to talk about CRT, have to break down CRT before I even introduce Black Crit in relation to that. So that was helpful to think about, like, don't assume they're all going to be like you and I Mm -hmm. and have, like, a level of understanding. So, like, bring the audience on. And I heard that as feedback from... Some of the people throughout the process were like, we appreciate that you took us on the journey with you and didn't assume we know what you're talking about when you even say anti-blackness. Like, Mm -hmm. what exactly does that mean? So I say that was really helpful advice for me.
2: Yeah,
0: no, that's, that's a lot of good info. And I think to respond to a couple of things you said, I would say for one, you know, feedback is something that is incredibly important in life in general. But I often, when I'm working with clients and students, will tell them, you know, for example, for a personal statement, you're going to write this personal statement and you're going to let mom read it. You're going to let your roommate read it. And then you let me read it. I know what I'm doing. Your mom, even if she's going to graduate school, maybe she got into graduate school despite having a bad personal statement, or maybe she does know what she's doing. Maybe your roommate knows what they're talking about. Maybe they don't, right? And so it's like you have to take all your feedback with a grain of salt. And mm-hmm. at a certain point, the feedback has to stop. Yes. <laughs> so you have to just know, okay, everybody's giving me their perspective. Yeah. Who is the person who I would expect to actually know what they're talking about? Yeah. I have a career coach who is telling me this is what a personal statement is and this is what I need to do. So for these things, I'm going to trust him. For this other stuff, maybe I'm going to trust my mom. For the other stuff, I'm going to trust the writing center. But... Then at a certain point you have to say I don't want feedback from anybody else. Nobody new gets to read this. Nobody else gets to reread it. I am going to call it done and be happy with it.
1: And also trust yourself. Right. Too. And
0: I think that that's such an important part of feedback. And we sometimes get caught up in just like you mentioned that feedback loop of okay I responded <laughs> to something you said, but now this new person doesn't it's like. like what I
1: hate you, that. <laughs> yeah. So
0: you have to just figure out when to when to put a stop to it. Yeah. The other thing I was gonna say is that like. I think coming through a PhD program, like I heard the word job talk, I think all of 40 times in my first semester without anybody explaining to me what Uh it was. And so, you know, understanding that it's a presentation and understanding that you are going to be expected to present content based on some type of prompt yes, or at the very least, you're just going to be presenting on your research and your research agenda. I think... I didn't know that until I just asked someone because people kept saying job talk around me and I was like, that's cute. What is that? And it's because I come from the administrative side of the house. And so when we do interviews, it's very different. The funny thing is that in career services where I work, at least the way we do it in, in the office I work in, we always require that people not only do a screening interview and the on-campus, but during their on-campus, they do have to do a presentation. Mm -hmm. We don't call it a job talk, but you have to do a presentation. Typically, it's about 25 to 30 minutes of presentation with about 15 minutes saved for questions and 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 answers. And I think that it is very similar to what you're talking about because we give a prompt and the prompt is usually not related to the person's like work history or future work endeavors, but more so related to the job that they're actually applying to. So I think, you know, those can be similar if you're like me, somebody who works in administration and maybe you're going to want to transition to academia at some point, understanding that perhaps some of the processes that you're going to have been some somewhat similar, but that there are some key differences in there as well. I will say that I get, I'm not afraid of the job talk. I like Presenting and speaking, but I am always curious as to how I will perform because I am an extemporaneous speaker. So I don't do well with reading things. I don't do well with cue cards.
1: I had a timer too.
0: Okay. I can do timers. Okay. But I like to have a general idea of what I want to accomplish in the presentation or on a particular slide, and I just go. And I've done that at conferences. It always goes well. But I know other people bring in like a script or they bring in like index cards. I will say if you do that in our office for a full-time job in a career center and you have some cue cards, you're not getting a job. So I think like understanding that those key differences are there as well, because perhaps there's more wiggle room for you to make some verbal mistakes or for you to not be quite as clear If you're not speaking with index cards and you're doing it extemporaneously because people will say, oh, well, maybe I can just ask a follow-up question later. Versus in a job talk for an academic job, they're expecting for you to really lay it out and go in-depth and do detailed things that maybe you can't do if you're not using some sort of aid.
1: Yeah, because I was going to say, I think the difference, too, is like you – because I could speak to you freely and not have any notes – because I'm not citing a number of stuff that I'm saying. I think what I needed the cue cards for was, number one, when I'm defining terms, being sure that I'm drawing from the literature. I don't think I can memorize that in my own language. Mm -hmm. And then also because you do need to be able to say, okay, I'm saying this and I'm citing Patricia Hill Collins for Black Feminist Thought. Generally, I remember that. But there's some Mm -hmm. other scholars where I'm like, okay, I want to make sure I'm quoting Fanon right in this, Mm -hmm. like, section and I also relate that back to the one of my concerns was not only because I'm interested in this position but what also like is working really well is that I literally cite a couple scholars from this institution mm. genuinely so wow. it wasn't even just because I was putting on but that also made me nervous because I'm like I don't want to misquote yeah, your yeah. work in case you're in the room yeah, and sure. so I was like that's <laughs> also a different thing where I'm just like oh Okay, so-and-so potentially could be at my job talk. Yeah. And so I think that, like, for me, added that extra pressure that made me not feel like I could speak for as freely as I might have if the person wasn't potentially in the room. Thankfully, yeah. I mean, I guess thankfully in some ways, neither of the people that I'm referring to came to my <laughs> job talk, which I was like,
0: whew. Yeah, um,
1: because that that scared me.
0: Yeah, I'm glad that the job talk went well. I know that you are going to do amazing things, Thanks. and I'm really excited for you. We're gonna move on into politics and talk about Biden's executive order on racial equity.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, first, I'll just say I've seen a lot of mixed reactions to Biden since he actually took office.
1: And let's say that's not even been, like, it hasn't even been two weeks.
0: I know, I know. (laughs) So nobody was ever gung-ho about Biden. Let me just start there. Like, I know that when I was voting in the primaries, I even told my dad, I was like, I'm worried that if Biden wins the nomination, young Black people and young people of other races may not vote at all. I think those of us who are educated and, and quote unquote woke or whatever or care about the state of the world will vote. But I'm worried about the average voter voting for Biden. And I, I that was just my own personal opinion, because I thought he represented too much of the establishment. Once he won the nomination, I think people realized that he was going to be more progressive than we thought. And I think he knew he had to take a step up. And be a bit more progressive and outspoken about some of the issues that young people care about. That being said, though, like I saw we've talked about no name before on the podcast. No name, mm-hmm. the current rapper. She says she has some music coming out soon. So current rapper slash activists. Okay, I don't she's
1: all the things. I guess. She's all the things. She <laughs> does a
0: lot. But she tweeted the other day, Biden is a white supremacist, right? And it was like no explanation, just kind of like tweeted it out there. And I saw a lot of reactions online of like, what would you have rather had as an alternative right because the our alternative was not only a white supremacist but a non stable person
2: mm-hmm. <laughs> is
0: what i saw in trump somebody who just wasn't stable yeah. in general and so so i think biden has done a lot of great things and is trying to continue to do a lot of great things that are going to help the average american that is going to help racial minorities in this country But it seems as if people are still kind of hemming and hawing around, as my dad would say. People are real skeptical of some of the stuff he's trying to do.
1: Yeah, so I'm looking at a few notes or I'm looking at his remarks from that day. I guess first thinking about what you shared, MP, I think that one of the things that I feel like is challenging in this climate that I'm maybe pushing up against is... This idea that there would be like some swift action—just thinking about all that has been happening the last four years—I mm-hmm. really feel like the expectations on any one person, particularly President Biden, are just like to me a bit outrageous. In again, what has been like two weeks, yeah. And if we really think about it, even these executive orders, which we will talk about more specifically, is to me a step in the right direction. And sure. thinking about all the things that's happened, it's like. How do we think he's going to just come in and turn over everything in literally one day? Mm-hmm. Um, MP showed me a video of this crazy woman crying about, you know, Trump not being in the White House. And what we really have to contend is there are people who really are that hurt. Yeah, And so I wonder how do you, as a president, which I think his language continuously goes back to, unite or at least superficially unite people that are so divided. And Mm -hmm. I, of course, want racial equity progressed in this country and throughout the world. But I also wonder how fast you can do that knowing that there's literally people who are crying because Trump isn't in the White House. I think about being in this position that Biden's in, not that this is coming from like, oh, I'm sorry for him, like he's president. So he has to contend with these tough issues. But I would just love to know when people are critical what you would like him to do i'm just like that's a question that i'm Mm -hmm. just thinking about so looking at this executive order what i do think is notable is in his remarks he definitely centered covid 19 in terms of laying out some of the rationale for some of the executive orders he stated black and latino americans are dying of covid 19 at rates nearly three times of that of white americans And it's not white Americans' fault, but it's just a fact. And the Americans now know it, especially younger Americans. And so, you know, we could talk about whose fault it is and, you know, not wanting to place that solely at the feet of current white people, but it's systemic, right? right? And so he doesn't note that, but this is reality. Like, I know, unfortunately, thinking about people who I know that have literally lost people to COVID-19 mm-hmm. have all been pretty much Black and Latinx people. Yeah, And so, you know, just thinking about that reality, I appreciate that he brought that in. And so like, you know, looking at the four elements of this executive order are, you know, addressing housing. So redress racial discriminatory federal housing practices, looking at the relationship between the Department of Justice and private prisons. And then the third is commitment to reaffirm the federal government's commitment to tribal s- sovereignty and consultation. And then combating xenophobia against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, I think in relation to COVID 19. Kind of thinking mm-hmm. about that's like a, I don't know, I felt full circle as I read that because we talked about that like a year ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On the podcast and just yeah. how, you know, Asian Americans were facing xenophobia in relation to COVID-19. So I think it's a step in the right direction.
0: Yeah, and I'll say, I'll take a step back even and say sometimes when I see folks who seem to be, and this is gonna be a problematic statement, I already know, but I'm gonna <laughs> finish my sentence. When I think about people who seem to be perpetually angry,
1: oh yeah, mm-hmm.
0: I do realize that when if I were to look at those people in history, who seem to be perpetually angry, their anger seems to be well-placed because it is looked at in the light of history, right? So we see, I won't call specific names, but we see activists from the 50s and the 60s and the 70s because of the context of what was going on during those times in American history and the fact that we can look at it in hindsight, right? we can look at that history, we can say, of course they were angry right? Even folks like, and I will call a couple names, like even folks like James Baldwin and mm-hmm. Angela Davis, when they seem fiery,
2: yeah,
0: it's like, of course they were angry because of what was going on in the country during that time. And I think we don't understand sometimes that the people who are angry now, <laughs> or who come off as angry now, when we look back on them 20, 30 years from now, it will make complete sense why they were angry. We will understand a bit more the the experiences that we're living through now. It'll be a lot clearer to us. And I know that sounds weird to say like, oh, living through something versus reflecting upon something. But I think sometimes when you, you're living in this and you're being bombarded with messages every day about what's going on in the country, there's turmoil and the news was so crazy for the past four years. And yes, the news has definitely slowed down in the past couple of weeks with Biden being the, the president. But I don't think we've been able to fully take in this moment. I don't think we fully processed and taken in what 2020 really was in terms of it being this watershed moment for racial equity and, and us understanding the, the racial reckoning that is still happening in this country. But I also agree with you that I think some of the anger is almost performative Mm. where people want to say angry things without solutions and i i don't want to say that you can't be angry unless you have a proposed solution but what i will say is that people who promote themselves to be activists and people who stand out as folks who are trying to educate when you are angry with no type of goal or direction to your anger outside of let's end racism like yeah let's end racism but in what ways is Biden not living up to trying to end racism and and how can he be better yeah I'm not saying that he's doing great I'm not saying that he's doing perfect I'm saying that if you're going to be angry let's talk about what he can actually do better And understanding that whatever you say likely could not have been done in the past two weeks.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think the the timing is, I think, part of my problem. Um, As you were speaking, MP, a song came to mind that I love, you know, Solange Knowles' album... Oh, gosh, what's the name of the album? Anyways, the song is called Mad. Okay. And it's with Lil Wayne. But some of the lyrics that I'll read at the beginning, so it says, You got the light count all joy, you got the right to be mad. But when you carry it alone, you find it only getting in the way. They say you got to let it go. And in the song, she's like, yeah, but I got a lot to, a lot to be mad about. So it was like talking about like, mm-hmm. you know, this this album, which includes like Don't Touch My Hair, which is also a great song. Mm-hmm. And Cranes in the Sky, this is just my album.
0: Is that a that at the table? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah.
1: And like, so thinking about this song, I feel like it kind of embodies like this perpetual anger and she's calling it you know being mad i feel like there's just ways that it can be more productive and you know that is my opinion and i understand people might say like don't tell me what to do with my anger which is fair and just yeah but i think there is a way that you could sit with you know the anger because i mean i would say i'm angry a lot of the times too but i feel like it manifests in different ways Mm -hmm. and so seeing something as you know progressing the right direction yes but it can also hold that You know, I wonder what can be done in a system that is structurally problematic. Mm -hmm. And so I connected what you said and just, yeah, definitely first went to Solange and just see a lot of power in that song for me. Because it's like, yes, we do have a lot to be mad about. And sometimes people just sit with that. That is a place that I'm not at right now. Mm -hmm. I have been there. And I can understand, you know, some people being there because this has been... At least for many of us as Black people, one of the hardest years we've had to experience in terms of seeing our people being killed and witnessing it, especially for our generation. Mm -hmm. Think, you know, not thankfully not having to experience, you know, the 60s and the 50s and, you know, not, not, like, witnessing lynching in the same way. People can say maybe we we witnessed modern-day lynching. For sure. And so I feel like that is real, and that has harmful psychological effects. Yeah. And so I feel like we're all just trying to navigate how could we sit with our anger in our own ways. And yeah. for us, I feel like MP, we're at least at a place where I think we are using where we're at in our life, whether it be our scholarship, our job, to work mm-hmm. through that anger. Yeah. And so, yeah, I feel like that... If you haven't listened to Solange Mad... You need to listen to that song. It yeah, is a... Uh,
2: yeah,
0: And I, I mean, I think to, to what you're saying, like, when I... I think I mentioned on the podcast, so this is not a secret, but I, I hit depression in 2020. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Part of it was the pandemic, but a lot of it was the back-to-back-to-back of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and, and, and others. There were others. Those are just the three big names that I know you'll recognize. And... I was tired. I was yeah. angry. I was, I felt defeated. And I felt like, is the work that I'm doing purposeful? Can we actually change this world? And for me, when I let that emotion sit there and I didn't do with it what I know to do, which is to fold it into my scholarship and to fold it into my work, it it defeated me. I couldn't accomplish other things. This business I just launched was supposed to be launched in 2020. And granted, maybe 2020 wasn't the best time to launch a whole business, uh, but <laughs> the fact that I couldn't because my depression literally was weighing me down, mm-hmm. that, I guess that's kind of what I'm getting at is I don't want to tell anybody what to do with their anger. But if you're just angry and it's not going to push you to move in any direction or to be a part of the solution, then I'm worried for you. I, I worry that, that you are not going to be healthy yeah. and well and whole. Because you're focused on just the emotion and not what could come after it. Now, do I get frustrated? Heck yeah. Let's talk about the fact that we're still studying reparations when scholars up and down the docket have told you that we should do reparations. Here's what the price tag would be. Let's do it. right? And we know that I think the last number I saw was like they would want to cut a $300,000 check to all descendants of slaves in the United States, if we were going to do reparations correctly, yet there's a whole commission on studying the reparations and whether or not we should do them and how much they should be. And I'm like, we've studied it already. We know already. Right. And so I get frustrated when I think about that, when I think about the fact that every time we want to do something that promotes racial equity, it's like, oh, back up. Let's really look at this. We don't want to help the black folks too much. Right. And it's like, Let's defund the police. Oh well, hold on, back up. We don't want it. And it's like, y'all, mm-hmm. it's been studied. And we talk.
2: We've been talking
1: <laughs> about this for like decades,
0: right? It's like we 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 know what the effects of giving people money is. It's good. It's good stuff. It it works, right? But I think getting angry about specific things that we can change is better than calling out Joe Biden as a quote unquote white supremacist. No shade to no name, but like. You do that. And then what does that mean? He's the president and he's actually actively trying to do things that promote racial equity, like ending the construction of the Keystone XL pipeline, like um, trying to end racial discrimination in housing. Like he's doing he's actively trying to do things. (laughs) But and so if we try to knock him down, what is the purpose? Like what is the the end goal of that?
1: So I have two thoughts, one that may um, shift us into our next segment, but then also one very random. So when you're talking about reparations, I don't know if you noticed that I was laughing, but not because (laughs) of the reparations, which may seem really random because I realized I never told you. So I did 23andMe and and sorry to my brother, Dejan, who we are full siblings. Mm -hmm. So I had to break this news to him. This is like really, I don't even know. We might have to cut this out because it's traumatic for me. I'm 53.6% African. I'm just half black, which is earth shattering. okay? Okay, so, I'm trying to... So for some of you... MP, I'm trying to follow. And he's like, oh, this is... I'm not surprised maybe. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out. I'm just so trying to figure out. I'll, I'll give out. some background. So I have talked about um identifying black as black, maybe on our intro video. Yeah, <laughs> i yeah, in our yeah. intro segment. But so... My parents are both Jamaican and immigrated to Canada, but my mom is racially black and mm-hmm. my dad, you know, for the most part, what I would describe my dad as Chinese Jamaican, but I know my dad has a number of like racial mixes okay. within him. So but- that's
0: where I wasn't surprised because I've never seen your dad. So I was <laughs> okay. like, knock a picture Yeah, So yeah, yeah. for me, I was like, well, if your dad is Chinese Jamaican, like the only other Chinese Jamaican I know is a guy that's a doctor and he looks Chinese <laughs> and then when he starts talking, he sounds like he's like taking your order at the uh, Caribbean Queen. Like I don't so I for me I was just like, Well if your dad's Chinese Jamaican, then why are you surprised?
1: Okay, well, I mean I think maybe I need to break down the whole percentages. So I wanted to do twenty three and me just to because I wanted to do it. I don't need to mm-hmm. give an explanation. But my brother and I, you know, we, our last name is Chin. So it's a mm-hmm. pretty, like, I guess, stereotypical Asian Chinese last name. And Jamaica has a long history of, like, Chinese indentured workers, mm-hmm. Indian indentured workers. Plus, of course, like, because of colonization, there are African ascended people who were enslaved and white people who were colonizers, slave mm-hmm. owners. And so I got this back and I was thinking I would get, like, a high Asian Chinese percentage. Mm-hmm. So, I guess I'll read it all and then I'll talk about my reactions. So, Sub-Saharan African, 53.6%. So, mm-hmm. I made the 50%. I'm happy about that. <laughs> European, aka white, 32.1%.
2: Okay.
1: And then Asian, 13.5%. Gotcha. So, the it was the... The European part that was like, what?
0: And, <laughs> and I don't know, like, we can revisit this. We now we have a long, we have an episode's worth of stuff to revisit because we somebody asked me specifically for us to revisit the Lion King thing, but yeah. <laughs> but we have to do that on a different episode. But so I think the way 23andMe works, and I would want to do some research before I like say this specifically. So this is not vetted, but like, they're looking at the DNA of people groups who live in certain parts of the world. Which means that when they say you're European, they're not necessarily saying white. They're not racializing it. They're talking about people groups that come from Europe. Yeah. And so those tend to be white people, but it also means that, like
1: they break it, they break it down further. Like when I say it too, I get what you mean, but yeah. they also break it down as like British and Irish.
0: Okay, well I can't really, I can't help you with
1: that. Yeah, so <laughs> I'm just like I'm. Not, I, I get what you're saying, and thank you, I appreciate it. Um, but
0: <laughs> I can't help you with the British <laughs> or Irish because
1: it's like very specific. I mean, I think ancestry.com is more like generic. Yeah, I and I think get what so. you mean. It also is in relation to who's done this and like yeah, the yeah, DNA yeah. that people that they have. So like for example, like there's a percentage of my DNA that's unassigned. So oh. they don't have a sample that relates to it. Mm-hmm. Um, So what they do say as they test more people, this can change. And like my Chinese specific mm-hmm. is 11%. Oh, okay. And so okay. 11.2 Chinese and South Asian, which is like also mixed with some Native American. I think it was just because I thought it would be inverted. Mm-hmm. So when I think about reparations, just the idea of like me being so like close in the 50s was a shocking I'm gonna have to go through this therapy session that <laughs> my brother literally texts me, he's like, I need therapy. <laughs> and then my friend's like, you're multiracial. I'm like, do not call me that.
0: <laughs> so I think that it's complicated. Yes. When for sure. we think about reparations because we know that people are um, biracial, multiracial. And I'm black though. You're you, exactly. <laughs> but I think that's the that's yeah. the point, right? Yeah. Is that like when we think about how people identify versus who gets reparations, Yeah, that is going to be very different. And I remember listening to a conversation about that, I think on Code Switch, which is that we would actually have to do a bit of what was done for the indigenous uh, groups in our country, which that whole thing is shady, the way that they assign themselves to tribes and, and prove ancestry within a tribe. But the goal really would have to be to see who is descendant from American slaves in the United States, people who were enslaved in the United States, and if you are not descended from someone who was enslaved in the United States, then you don't get reparations. Now, what that would also mean is that there might be somebody who looks and moves through the world as a white person in 2021, white passing person, or somebody who we would just say is white, not even white passing. There might be people in 2021 who are white, Who descended from slaves? And what do we do when they say, I want my $300,000? They have not experienced the racism of American black people. And they also maybe don't even have descendants in the last couple of generations of their family, mother, grandmother, great grandmother. Maybe all of those people also were white passing or racially white. But if you kept going back, you would get to people who were slaves. So now do they, generations of people who've been able to build generational wealth and move through the world as white, do they get reparations? And I think that that's one of the things that if you thought, if you want to undo my argument from earlier that we've studied this enough, that is one of the things that I do think we haven't studied and figured out enough because we have to decide who gets, if we're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars potentially, who gets that money? And I know... I don't think I know a Black person who would be okay with cutting a white person a $300,000 check because great-great-great-great-great-great-granddaddy was enslaved and, and was Black, right? Like, I don't know.
1: Yeah, you bring up so many important points, and I will say two quick things. And we definitely can put a note for our whole reparations talk, and maybe a guest and us can speak more deeply about it. Because one thing that you brought up I think is interesting is... Enslavement in the United States. Yeah. So, what then happens to maybe not someone like me, but somebody who is Jamaican ascendant or descendant, and they live here now, but let's say they're a couple generations American. Like, for example, my ancestry evidence also showed that while I have this racial mix, mm-hmm. 200 years of DNA in Jamaica. Right. And so, for example, like now I, face discrimination in the Americas as a Canadian citizen, let's say. Mm-hmm. So if there was some sort of, like, reparations in America, how does that work for Jamaicans whose family were enslaved, but they're Americans here? So then does it now start dividing from, like, your origins? But this person's a citizen now. I'm talking yeah, about people yeah, who are yeah. citizens. So
0: I think the the thing we would have to think about is, and there's different schools of thought on this, I know from a little bit of the research that I've done, but the question you would have to ask is what are reparations for? So the prevailing opinion is that they are for unpaid wages, accrued through slavery, and you are now paying the descendants of those slaves who never were paid for the labor that they did. Plus like adjustments for inflation and all the other calculations. If you go with that definition, then if you are in this country, but you are descended from people who were enslaved in another country, it doesn't matter that you experience racism now in America. You get zero dollars and zero cents because your family did zero work in the but United America, States.
1: But America is a new nation that came after enslavement. So mm-hmm. it was a British but colony. They're not,
0: but, but, but they're not trying to pay for slavery. They're trying to pay for the, ra- the wages that are owed through American slavery.
1: But American slavery was... British slavery, because my connection is Jamaican slavery was bl- British slavery, Right, like they were all British colonies. So Britain so owes that, you money. So <laughs> America, make, America can make the argument that Britain owes them money to pay slaves because America comes mm-hmm. from Britain. Like, do you see what I mean? Well, like, I
0: think America wouldn't be able to, That would they wouldn't be able to stand on that because America, I mean, you know, we had a pretty big war where we decided that yeah, we wanted yeah. to not be a part of. Britain, and then Britain actually ended their slavery before the United States and decided we're not doing this anymore. This is horrible. They didn't pay reparations, but they ended their slavery Mm -hmm. and America decided we're going to keep this thing going because this is what we want to do. And then we fought a war with ourselves over it. So I think like America wouldn't be able to stand on that argument, but I know that the economists that I've read are pretty specific that if you live in this country and experience racism because you are racially black you don't deserve reparations because your family was not enslaved on American land. So you don't deserve reparations from the United States. That is, let me say that. But I I agree with you, it's tricky and it's messy.
1: I guess to add to that though, and so just studying the Caribbean, which because they were largely black, their economies are non-existent right now Mm -hmm. versus the U.S. is thriving because of the dynamics of the population. So while I hear you, I think for me, maybe I can look in more research related to that where a lot of countries, for example, Haiti is completely Mm -hmm. like their relationship with American economy is also very tenuous where America has definitely exploited Haiti in so many ways and had like embargoes placed on them and Mm -hmm. just very problematic relationship where there is a very connected dynamic to me in relation to enslavement, Mm -hmm. where so I think it's like, I I hear you, but I think I probably because I'm Caribbean come from a place of I get what you're saying. But I think that's where reparations can become very divisive in the Mm -hmm. black community. Because if I'm a ascendant of, of enslaved people, and I now live in the Americas, to me, I think it's it becomes problematic. And not to say I don't want other people to get reparations, but I think that because I know how Caribbean economy has been decimated mm-hmm. by Western nations, yeah. it is very, like, there is a lot of the resources and the things that come through America have to, are in relation to African countries, to Caribbean countries. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just very complicated of then, like, even though you're an American citizen and you're Black and you are experiencing life as a black person and you even are an ascendant of a slave. Now we're gonna say, okay, depending on where the boat landed, basically. Yeah. So I just think for me it's it, it starts to become very of course it is complicated. It doesn't yeah. start to become very complicated because we we we're not fixed. And I think that's the beauty of this conversation. That's really powerful. Yeah. But it, it can become emotional. Cause I know I would be like, what the hell? Like, mm-hmm. you know, my family mm-hmm. was enslaved for centuries and yeah. so now I'm like okay I'm living in Canada I won't even necessarily say America right mm-hmm. and I feel like yeah Canada didn't have widespread enslavement but does that mean Canada doesn't owe black people m- money in the same ways because there was enslavement in mm-hmm. c- in Canada so it's like it's it's very interesting yeah I, I look forward to research on it yeah I was about to
0: say we we yeah. definitely got to get into it some more and because I, I think like for me I'm okay with paying black folks who maybe are descended from folks who were not enslaved on American land. If we change the definition of what reparations are supposed to be. Yeah. So, because I think that that, that gets into like how you decide on what you're, mm-hmm. what you're doing. However, like that price tag, right. So we think about the legitimacy of, of this ever happening, that price tag, when you do that jumps significantly. The other thing I think about, which I don't really care but, about that, but the other thing, though, is that, like I said, even if I were to stand on, no, 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 Tiana, you and people like you do not deserve reparations. Even if I were to stand on that, what I can't stand on, what I can't stomach is a racially white person getting paid.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: like, like, and I, you can try to cancel me if you want to. <laughs> that, that I would not be able to stomach. I can't imagine... And- a racially white person, not somebody who's white passing. I'm not, this is not colorist. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about somebody who's actually racially white right now, who X number of generations ago had a biracial or black person in that. They are descended from who they're going to say, I deserve reparations because of, (laughs) and I'm like, "Uh." Uh but and then but
1: I've, you been then <laughs> I couldn't get reparations. Right, that's what I'm saying. Like
0: that that that's where it gets a little bit tricky. <laughs> I know we don't have very long <laughs> left because we need to make sure that we don't have this podcast go on forever. <laughs> but I'm maybe <laughs> far more excited than I'm allowed to be to talk about chloe bailey
1: okay i was like i don't know if you still want to do that or but yeah i don't know maybe we can talk about
0: it for a second (laughs) at least since it's timely so some of y'all may have seen this online if you're on social media but chloe and hallie the sensational r b slash pop group that came from beyonce's lineage they have decided to try to build up their own individual brands i think Hallie is still filming Little Mermaid, I think, because I think filming got interrupted for that during COVID. And so she's away from her sister. And they have two separate Instagram accounts now. And you, I even posted this on social media recently. You can really tell that, that they are two different people and that them being together on one social media account was a little bit constricting for both of them because they had to figure out what is the image we portray. Mm-hmm. For a long time, Hallie was younger and was underage so some of the stuff that maybe chloe wanted to do that would have been a little bit more risque they couldn't do and then when they split there was this this moment where i think everybody realized oh wait chloe is like a grown woman and she started to maybe be a little bit more like i said just to use a word that people will recognize a little bit more risque than what folks we're used to seeing on the Chloe and Halle Instagram page.
1: Yes. If some of you are familiar with them, they also are actresses, so they're on Grown-ish. That's right. I um, forgot about Groanish. I gotta catch up on that. <laughs> <laughs> and so I guess from that perspective of Grownish, like I was kind of I was surprised and not surprised at sort of what I guess is the center of this conversation is the backlash that Chloe received based on some videos that she posted on her now new Instagram because I feel like "Grownish" explores sexuality and, you know, relationships and like they're in relationships on that show. And so Mm -hmm. for me, it wasn't like that jarring. And like, also like their music video for Do It, I love that song also, Mm -hmm. but it was, it is more like sexual or embodied sexiness. And so when I saw this video, I was like, okay, like, cool.
0: Well, I think, so here's the thing. And I, this is no shade to either of them. I would say that nobody watches music videos anymore, really, at the level that we used to. Yeah, yeah. Because it's the internet and TV has been killed essentially by the internet, which also feeds into my second point that I don't think very many people are watching Grownish because it's hard to watch it if you don't have cable. And so. It's
1: on Hulu, though. It is on Hulu, <laughs> but I think
0: like a lot of people are probably not watching Grownish. Who ended up being who ended up seeing her dancing videos? Because that original dancing video that I think is what sparks the silhouette challenge that is happening right now on the internet was when I saw it was at five million views, and it was that was the the day after it came out. It was five million views, which means that millions of people who probably don't watch Grownish saw this dancing video. And I think the internet just picked up with a lot of their opinions on her behavior. And then there was a lot of backlash to people's opinions on her behavior, which is kind of the crux of this conversation around. And I know we've talked about it before, but like the policing of black women's Bodies and trying to understand why people reacted you know in that way is not hard when you understand the history of the policing of Black women's bodies.
1: Yeah, if you could see me right now, I'm just rolling my (laughs) eyes because you know Kylie Jenner, and not to say she hasn't received criticism, but I don't even know how old she is, and like I feel like she's been showing her silhouette that she's been been she's been naked on the internet for a long time, crafted by the. (laughs) the doctors right. has been like very sexualized and I'm not critiquing her sexuality, right. but I it's just continuously like annoying, frustrating to me that black b- women's bodies are so policed. And I will share and wasn't planning to be this transparent, but I would say I'm a pretty shapely person. And when I was growing up, it was hard for me as a black woman to like navigate how to be a teacher in particular and Mm -hmm. wear clothes that I feel like showed my figure. And for the reason that I feel like because of the way my body's proportioned, there's always this idea that if I wear tight clothes, I'm sexualizing my body. Mm -hmm. Where like, I'm just wearing fitted clothes as anyone else would wear fitted clothes. But because I have hips, like there's this idea that like you're sexualizing yourself. Mm -hmm. And so... As a black woman, it is really frustrating to have to think about like your dress and like being perceived as even sexualizing yourself, even when you're not wanting to project that because of mm-hmm. what people place on you. And then when you want to be sexy, having to explain why. Yeah. And I think that that was really bothersome in terms of seeing Chloe making this video where she was explaining you know how she used to feel like she was fat and had problems with cellulite Mm -hmm. and now she's in a place where she's you know in a place of self-love and self-confidence and i think that is a thing that i would love society to be at one day where they understand like how criticisms are so tied to these structural systemic issues of racism Mm -hmm. and patriarchy where a black woman can't even dance with the light off without it being like, why? Why is she being so sexual? Number one, she can if she wants to be. She's 22. Yeah. If she wants to be sexy, she can. And more power to her. But I feel like I don't even want to necessarily say that because she, I don't even need to encourage her. She can do whatever she wants. Right. But then also understanding that for a lot of us who have these bodies who are hypersexualized, it is hard to navigate as a person. Like just mm-hmm. having to think about like, oh, if I go and I wear a certain skirt, somebody might critique me when I go to many places and I see white girls wearing the same thing yeah. and nothing is said and there's no comment about... Ariana Grande, I think about as one of the person, where I'm like, her music is so sexual. Yeah. And she is, I think, around the same... No, I think she's older now. But, like, yeah. I feel like there's not that same type of, like, what is going on with Ariana Grande and this outward criticism.
0: Yeah, so a couple of things I will say is, like... Ariana Grande, I know she's sang in Spanish before, so I want to say that she doesn't identify as white, but racially she's white. And yeah, I feel like we so, fact checked this before. So, yeah, she's white. <laughs> and I will say that like she was on a kid's show, and I'm going somewhere with this, but she was on a kid's show mm-hmm. and transitioned pretty seamlessly from kids' show to pop star. And after that first album, her first album was, like, about love and relationships. Yeah. After that first album, it was sex. Everything was about sex. Yeah. And nobody really blinked. and Nobody chided her or said anything to her. And I think that it's important for us to understand the racial dynamics that come into play yeah. there. However, I will say that somebody else that I think of who's not white that also went through that transition and was given a lot more space and grace is Zendaya, Zendaya was in Disney shows and I feel like she went from Casey Undercover to uh, Euphoria in the blink of an eye and now she's in Malcolm and Marie and she's been able to do things that are more sexy and that are more grown up and adult without receiving the same amount of backlash. I think the difference here is that when people saw Chloe and Halle, they didn't just see kid stars they saw role models they saw life role models for their children and, and even in grownish, they are all playing a part so it's like yeah you can deal with sexuality you can deal with this and deal with that uh, as topics for the show but then chloe actually being in some people's eyes sexual online in her real life now starts to to mean to some people that she can't be that same role model that she maybe never even asked to be so i'm not saying that i'm definitely not agreeing with the people's backlash online i'm simply saying that i think what we have to remember is that we don't get to have expectations for people that they didn't ask for and i think that Specifically with her, she is just living her life and doing her thing and doing what she wants. And people have turned it into a lot more than it ever needed to be. But it does point out some issues that we have societally and how we treat women's bodies in general and then Black women's bodies more
1: particularly. I see it a little differently and, you know... I think this is maybe, this is obviously my opinion in relation to Zendaya and Chloe. I think one thing too is their body makeup. For sure. And so I think like Chloe, and kind of going back to what I say, I think there's certain bodies that are inherently sexualized because of the shape. For sure. And I think Zendaya being a slimmer girl, which I would say has smaller hips than Chloe mm-hmm. and just has less of like that, what. Kim Kardashian has marketed as her, like, shape, mm-hmm. which comes a lot from Black women's structure in yeah. history. I think that is part of also why, like, there is that heavier backlash. Because yeah. I feel like if Zendaya maybe was a little bit more, like, a modern-day language thick, mm-hmm. I wonder if that conversation would be a little bit different. And I think while Euphoria is definitely sexualized, mm-hmm. I think because of some of the nature of the sexuality, it's a little bit different than, mm-hmm. like, her owning it in a more personal sense i don't right. know if zendaya has like videos where like she's projecting that on her instagram so i think to like one being a project or a job versus maybe it's because it's her public image yeah that maybe they're having more of a critique i'm just wondering like how that plays in but i definitely think the body shape thing which we can come back to
2: mm-hmm. i'm
1: sure we'll come back to many times i think that also plays in the politics of like how somebody is seen like just by the the clothing that they wear, they'll be like, oh, that's a sexy outfit. And we'll be on another person yeah. who's slimmer and it's not seen as being sexy.
2: Yeah.
0: And I and I don't remember this news anchor's name. So let's Google it. And then... I feel like
1: Drake follows her. If this is who I'm talking about. <laughs> kind of like Teacher Bay.
0: Yeah. <laughs> there we go. I couldn't remember her name. Her name is Demetria Obalore. Yes. Obalor. yes and she is what you would maybe consider to be a little bit more shapely or quote unquote thick or whatever and i feel like she gets a lot of backlash for just yes. living in her body yes. or like or exactly like teacher bay yeah. who you know get got a lot of backlash for living in her body right yeah. and it, this idea that like you should have to police yourself if you have been given a certain type of body when mm-hmm. there are other women who purchase said body <laughs> and literally unpolice like, themselves. Talk
2: about it. Like, and, like, us, they they like... literally
0: like go buy the body and then free themselves to do whatever they want in it. But the women who, who have these bodies naturally are asked to make themselves more modest, asked mm-hmm. to think about the kids and yes. all these other things. <laughs> and so, you know, I think I've said before as a person of faith, like... I personally choose not to consume the content that maybe will put my head in a certain space as a married man, as somebody who just believes a certain thing in a certain way. Like, I choose not to interact too much with Chloe's Instagram. Like, I love some of the music stuff she does, but when I see some of the other stuff, I pass it by. And I think the reason I bring it up is because I would like to say to all the men out there, you don't have to look at everything either. So like the men who had a lot to say about it, it's like, you you don't have to see it. Like you could unfollow her. You could, why did you follow her in the first place? Like, like you know, you. I follow her because somebody posted her making beats and making music. And I really enjoyed that. And I, I went and followed Hallie because I saw her playing the guitar and making music. But when she did the silhouette challenge and I saw it, I was like, what is this? When I realized what it was, I was like, wow, this has 5 million views. And I kept scrolling. You don't have to consume everything that is out in the world. If it offends you, move on. You don't have to critique everything. And I think that, like, that's where the policing comes in, where people are like, I have to have something to say about this. No, you don't. Nobody cares about your opinion. When she never asked what you thought about it. She wanted to dance, so she danced. And that is the body that she has to dance in. That's the one she's been given. So if you if it offends you if it is problematic to your well-being in some way if it causes you to sin <laughs> don't consume it and move on with your life but berating her online and you know all of that is a lot much we are meaning making beings but we have to understand that when we make meaning of other people's lives and of other people's bodies that haven't given us permission to do so, we out of pocket.
1: I just want to say as a Black woman, my final thought is I look forward to a world where we can be in our bodies and not have to worry about how it's presented or how someone interprets it. For sure. But in the meantime, I'm working on just being okay with that for myself, Mm -hmm. where I can wear clothes and not worry about how someone will interpret my body. And I think that that is a reality and I want to share that that's something that I deal with and that as Black women, we have to deal with. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, speaking to Black women, just encouraging you to find the space that you are comfortable with your body and not worried about how someone interprets it, perceives it, you know, thinks a bit at sexual when you're just presenting yourself. Yeah. Be you. We have always had to love ourselves before the world does. Yeah. So just continue to do that and hoping that the worlds will one day allow us to just be.
0: Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so that is it. This is way longer than we meant it to be. And also, I'll let y'all in on the secret. We know what we was going to talk about today. <laughs> <laughs> so- Maybe that's a- <laughs> so this is this is a good episode. So I'm glad that we talked about all the things that we did. We don't do long episodes all the time and some of our longer episodes tend to be our more popular ones. So maybe, <laughs> maybe y'all will eat this up. Uh, y'all let us know. But we thank y'all for listening. We appreciate you all for engaging with us in this podcast journey that we're on. If you would so choose, please follow us on Instagram at <laughs> Black Intellectualish and on Twitter at Black Intel Pod. One of these days we're going to bust out with a reel or some type of tiktok or something like that but y'all keep up with all of the goings on for black and intellectualist. we'll yes. see y'all next time peace
1: yes. see you soon